This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. You're listening to episode 157. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. I'm very excited for this episode. As you see in the title, my guest today is Annie Duke. Uh, One of my earliest memories of watching sports, believe it or not, was watching the 2003 and 2004 World Series of Poker, seeing legends like Chris Moneymaker and Greg Raymer win the title, then all the tournaments in between was just so cool, and all I wanted to do was play poker. Uh, Another standout amongst the greats playing these now-televised events was, you guessed it, Annie Duke. Since retiring from the game in 2012, Annie is an author, corporate speaker, and consultant in the decision-making space. Annie's latest book, How to Decide Simple Tools for Making Better Choices, was released in the fall of 2020 from Portfolio, a Penguin Random House imprint. Her previous book, Thinking in Bets, is a national bestseller. As a former professional poker player, she has won more than $4 million in tournament poker. During her career, Annie won a World Series of Poker bracelet and is the only woman to have won the World Series of Poker Tournament of Champions and the NBC National Poker Heads-Up Championship, which, by the way, is on YouTube, and I highly, highly, highly recommend you go and watch uh, some of her playing days. It's it's just She's incredible. Uh, prior to becoming a professional poker player, Annie was awarded a National Science Foundation Fellowship to study cognitive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. Annie is the co-founder of the Alliance for Decision Education, a nonprofit whose mission is to improve lives by empowering students through decision skills education. She is also a member of the National Board of After School All-Stars and the Board of Directors of the Franklin Institute. In 2020, she joined the board of the Renew Democracy Initiative. Long story short, she's incredible, and I'm still wrapping my head around what I learned from speaking with her. So thank you again for tuning in to episode 157 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my conversation with the legendary, the amazing Annie Duke. back everybody to the planet microcap podcast i'm your host robert Kraft, and i have a very special guest for me today i mean for everybody but for me especially because look 
Derek Jeter was my favorite baseball player of all time. I can't tell you the first game I ever saw him play, but for some reason in my head, the 2003 and 2004 World Series of Poker, those two main events, and then watching her play in countless YouTube videos and everything like this is, I'm, I'm a little starstruck right now. So forgive me if I'm a bit goofy. I'm going to be goofy. It's all good. So uh, with that, I'd like to introduce the soon to be Dr. Annie Duke. Annie, thank well, you for joining me today. Thank you so much. That was, that was, I'm not sure I can live up to the introduction to tell you the truth. I'll see what I can do. I, 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 I think having prepared for this, watching pretty much every single uh, TED talk and Google talk, and then actually your interview that you did with Jim and Jamie at Infinite Loops. Yeah, I, I'm not worried. I, I think, okay. I think, right. I think, I think we'll have plenty to talk. I mean, I, think I, lo I loved, I, I love Jim. He's so great. And he he hit me he hit me with a big one a big question at the end of that he was like if you could make any law what would it be and I was like what no <laughs> that was a really hard one but I love him he's so he's so fantastic well, he was, I mean he was he's trying really to support your your upcoming you know run for Congress you know because <laughs> yeah, yeah right yeah right <laughs> yeah I, I <laughs> yeah we'll leave, we'll leave we'll leave that right we'll leave, let's leave, leave that one on the side right now uh, so Congress I, still exists. I was I was joking with you offline. Like this might be the most nonlinear interview I've ever done because I have just so many questions and and so many different places I want to go to, and quite frankly, just so many things I want to learn from you today. So I figured uh, we I'm going to start off with a fun question. I mean, these okay. are all going to be fun questions. This is, I, I try and make this is the most fun interviews anybody can do, but we'll you know whatever we'll see. We'll see. So, we'll see. We'll, we'll see. So. Uh, you know, I was telling you offline that, you know, a number of, of microcap investors I've interviewed on here, their first careers were actually as professional poker players, not to, you know, soon to be Dr. Annie Duke level, but, you know, professional poker players nonetheless, and or or now are avid poker players themselves. So this is actually, it's actually a very serious question that I have for you here. You know, are you planning on becoming a microcap investor? <laughs> and, and do you really plan on breaking this trend? This is really important stuff. This is, but so I'll tell you a story. So there's a lot of crossover between investing and poker, obviously, because poker is investing. Um, and poker creates, I, I think, a, a super real, like a really good training environment for um, uh, investing. And, and I think particularly like for options trading, it's particularly good for that type of activity. But even like, you know, if you're long short or whatever, it's, I think it's very good for that because they're, they're both, you know, under extreme uncertainty, uh, there's a lot of luck involved. So like how to deal with those feedback loops is actually quite difficult. Um, you have to really learn to, to think in expected value because, um, you know, any one trade can obviously go up and down. If you're, you know, in these things, you tend to be trading small edges. So obviously we'd like to be grinding a 52, 48 all day, but that means that 48% of the time, like we're going to lose and we have to sort of deal with that and understand what that means. And this, that's, it's very, it's a very hard skill to develop and poker happens to be a really good place to develop it. So the story that I can tell you that's related to this is back in 2002, actually, um, I, I met somebody who uh, uh, is what was with a pretty large options trading firm. And, um, that person wanted to hire me because they they actually were really interested in recruiting out of poker, um, and part of their education program at the firm actually made the people the the traders that they were educating the new traders play poker because they felt it was very important for this type of thinking. So uh, back in 2002, we were talking about it. We got really far down the road with discussing me coming and trading options on the floor. Um, 
we actually even decided that I would trade in Chicago, like, cause I could have, it could like Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, I think Dublin was even an option, Australia sort of thought about where I might want to be and had sort of settled on Chicago. And so I was very far down the line. And then all of a sudden poker was on television, like kind of out of the blue. And I just basically said to him, you know, let me just put a pin in it because I just kind of want to see what's going on with this poker thing and the TV thing. Um, and obviously what happened with that poker thing and the TV thing was like a pretty big deal. So I never did end up becoming a trader, but I was like on the precipice of becoming a trader, like not necessarily micro cap, obviously I was going to uh, trade options, but um, so yeah, I was going to go become a, like a market maker, but I, whatever, I ended up playing poker and I never did do that. The funny <laughs> part of the story is that I am now married to that person who tried to hire oh. me. So so it ended up working out great anyway, and I'm very happily married. Listen, there's still time for you to become the greatest microcap investor of all. Time. Well, that's true. That's true. Of time. You know, I kind of so so I sort of found my way back to finance anyway because most of my consulting is in finance. So I end up get getting to be in finance um, and you know help people with their decision making through that and like a you know applying not just my cognitive science background but also the poker background in terms of you know, creating better decisions for, for people who are making tough decisions in these very uncertain environments. So I get, did get to do it. So I feel like I have the best of both worlds. Like I don't have the stress of actually uh, actively trading, but I get like all the adrenaline and the, and the problem solving. And like, so I get all the good stuff that comes from it without like kind of the downside that comes from it. I think I lived like, I, you know, for 18 years, that's what I was doing. It's actually, you know, as everybody knows, it's a pretty stressful uh, way to, to make a living. And so I'm kind of happy to have found a way to prune the stress out of the whole process. Listen, I think I think I think being a microcap investor gives a whole new definition of being on tilt, right? I mean, right? It's, <laughs> like it's, just, you know, it, I mean, more so probably from a trading perspective. Actually, no, whether you're a trader or a long-term investor, I mean, you know, what one of the things I wanted to talk about today, because that, I, as I said at the open, I, I listened to your uh, TED talk about risk management to prepare for this, and I and I and I felt a lot of kinship with the idea of self-serving bias, especially when yeah. it comes to your, when, because most of the investors I have on here are that long-term focus, you know, they, they don't really care about price. You know, it's really all about, all right, well, how good is this business? And do I think it can appreciate in value in five to 10 years? You know, so it's a lot of that question of like, should I sell? You know, is, how, how do I hold? You know, so I'd, I'd love to hear, you know, your thought process on, how, how to get yourself, how to build that mental model to get there where you can decide for yourself, I want to be a long-term investor, you know, because that's something that's the hardest thing for a lot of people I feel like to overcome. Yeah. So actually, so if I understand your question, this is actually a topic that I've been thinking really deeply about lately, um, which is, you know, I, so I, I don't know if you're familiar with um, Angela Duckworth's book, Grit. Mm -hmm. um, the power of passion. I'm probably the least well-read interviewer you'll it's ever meet. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> so she, it's a great book. People should read it. Um, uh, she, she's amazing. She's like a, got a MacArthur fellowship, like Grant and she, she's really super smart, super nice also, by the way, and just like brilliant researcher. Um, and, and she has a book that's really about sort of sticking to things and perseverance. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's really wonderful. Um, but there's a flip side to that, which you pointed out. So, so you have this question of, you know, 
how how do I deal with the ups and downs as I'm thinking about holding for the long term? And like, you know, a big problem is, for example, if you look at March, right, when if you, you know, obviously, there's pretty uh, vertical downward trajectory, you know, how do you how do you figure out, like, can I persist through that? Is that just kind of a local thing that's happening? And I should be have faith in the long term trend, that this is going to go up and know that this is temporary? Um, or should should I actually quit? And so I think this idea of persevering through difficulties is certainly important in terms of sort of sticking to your long-term plans for sure. But we also need to think about these quitting decisions because perseverance on its own isn't enough. So we want to actually calibrate. We want to think about um, grit and quitting is like the same thing. It's like two sides of the same coin. And we want to just figure out where we're supposed to sit on that. And I think that for people who are uh, long-term investors, that can be really difficult because there are lots of sort of local ups and local downs. And how do you sort of figure that out? So what I can the the what I can tell you is that all of the research shows that if you try to figure it out in the moment, you'll be bad at it. So in other words, it's like the something drops, you know, 3% or 5% or something like that. You'll have some sharp downturn. And if you think you're going to be able to do a rational analysis of uh, you know, what the, you know, what the expectancy is at that moment in time, you should sort of disabuse yourself of that idea. Um, all the research says that that's a moment where you're probably not going to make a very good decision. And this kind of brings up this, this issue, I think, for investors is that I think that we all kind of have this intuition that, well, I'm going to hold, I'm going to, I'm going to get this position on, but then obviously like when the world is telling me stuff and giving me information that I'll be pretty good at figuring out what I should do once I get that information. I think we sort of all have that intuition, partly because when other people are holding something, we can see it much more clearly. And so we imagine that we could see that in ourselves. And it turns out we're actually really bad at that. So, so then the question is, okay, if we know we're going to be bad in the moment, if we know we're, if we're going to make those adjustments poorly when we're kind of like in it, um, then what are we supposed to do? And the answer is you're supposed to do the, this work in advance. And there's a couple of things that you can do. Um, one is when you, when you do put a position on, you can basically just say, when it reaches a certain strike price, I'm going to be done. And you could think about that on, on both the, the upside and the downside. So that, that's like a very simple strategy that you can use, but it's not, it's a pretty reasonable one, by the way, you know, you can just figure out like, what do I think the upper bound yeah. is for the stock and what, you know, what's the, what's the point at which it, it drops enough that I realized that my thesis was probably wrong. Um, uh, and you can think about that in advance with very clear eyes and you can just say, uh, that's the price at which I will sell both on the upside, uh, on the upside and the downside. So that's actually an incredibly good strategy if you stick to it. So that's one thing that you can do. The other thing you can do is say, uh, what are the conditions that could be true of the world that would make me want to change my thesis? So this is when you're, this is as you're investing, right? So, so what that requires is that when you invest, you write your thesis down, right? And so when you write your thesis down, you have to say, this is what I believe to be true of the world. And then you have to actually write down, here, here are the things that I think I'm going to see occurring in the world that make this a good investment. So you have to be very specific in what your thesis is. So you can't just have a thesis like, I think this sex sector is undervalued. That's not, that's not enough. You have to say why you think it's undervalued. So the example would be like, let's say that I'm investing in a, in a stock. Um, what I'm saying is that I think that the, I know something that the market doesn't know. That by definition, that's what you're doing when you invest in a stock, unless you're indexing. 
right? And then you're saying, I know only what the market knows. And I think the market has an upward trend. That's a totally different thing. But assuming that you're an active investor, when you when you buy a stock, I'm assuming you buy, or frankly, if you short, but when you buy a stock, you're saying, I know something that the market doesn't know. Okay, so say what that is specifically. As an example, maybe it's the market is pricing in that this company is going to produce 100 widgets in the next six months. But I think the market's going to, I think it's going to produce 120 widgets in the next six months. It's fine. So just write that down, right? So that's now making very explicit uh, the things that you think are going to be true of the world that are causing you to decide to buy. So you're you're actually breaking your thesis down into kind of its component parts with a forecast of what might be true of the world. And then when make a commitment, if those things aren't true of the world, then I should get off this position because it means that my thesis was wrong. And what tends to happen is like, let's say that you had this thesis that was going to produce 120 widgets. It's really easy for you to... Um, rationalize right like so it produces 95 widgets and you go yeah but it was COVID that would be like the best example so you have to actually commit to these things and say uh, say you know what do I think is going to be true of the world and uh, what would have to be true of the world what would be the signals or the signposts that would tell me that this isn't going the way that I thought and if those things occur what 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 can happen in the world that will tell me it is not going to produce the number of widgets that I believed it would um, and at the, when that happens, I must sell. That's like your your exit sign. Mm-hmm. So so it, I love this example because I feel like uh, so many people in, let's say in January 2020, they're making, they're looking at their portfolio, like doing the same thing that you're saying, like, okay, I think that it's going to, this company is going to make 120 widgets. Here are all the things that are happening in the world. And they missed COVID, you know, like what, how, what, what? How, how should investors think about when they're doing that? And yet they may have missed a black swan event. I mean, you know, right. how much, le- how much leeway do you, would you give in that decision-making process when you're like, I missed that. So how much should I, you know, where I'm going with that? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the question is always, you know, I mean, and this is, this is the big problem we have when we decide under uncertainty, is this really a particularly unusual event? Um, or, uh, am I just rationalizing? Mm, so right. generally it's going to go into, I'm just rationalizing, but obviously with COVID, it's a particularly unusual event. And then the question is just a new one, right? Which is you, you must make a forecast of what you believe that the world is going to look like in the next month or the next year. And you have to kind of decide that. Now, I will tell you that one of the best strategies for getting yourself to think about it more rationally is to sell all of your positions. And then buy back the ones that you feel make sense. Why is that? Because it's easier once you've actually gotten off the position and you've taken, you sort of move that onto your your balance sheet, um, not your balance sheet, but your actual P&L, um, to actually make a fresh decision about it that makes sense. So I'm not talking about panic selling, right? I'm saying some new thing has happened in the world. It actually sometimes makes sense to just sell all of your positions and, and then just say, okay, what do I want to buy? What, what is my thesis? Let me think how I want to allocate this capital. And you may actually rebuy positions that you had, but you'll be more rational about buying those positions. So that is one strategy that you can use. Another strategy that you can use is say, I don't have enough information. And so I should just hold. That's another thing that you can do, right? Is like, I don't know enough. 
Um, and then you can just basically go and say like, how long do pandemics usually last? Like, or you can actually sit down and do this and, and, and basically say, uh, what are the signals that would tell me that things are going to continue to go down versus what are the signals that might tell me that things will start to recover and go up? Um, and you have to start thinking about that. But those kinds of problems are extremely hard. Um, I can tell you for me, my strategy was just the hold strategy. I just said, you know, I don't know enough to know to, to feel like I should sell here. Um, you know, and I've got enough of a long term horizon that I don't, th I don't think that I need to do anything about it. But that's just because my, my horizon is incredibly long. But, but I will tell you the sell all your positions and start over is pretty good. You just want to make sure that you do it quickly, right? So, so if you're going to sell all your positions, you want, you want to be buying back very quickly because that's the whole point of it is, is, okay, now let me think I've got all this capital now. What do I want to allocate it to, right? So, so that's a way, for example, that you, can, you could look and say, well, given that COVID exists, what are the what are the industries where I don't need to worry about the uncertainty of COVID because the industry itself is is actually going to be pretty robust under these circumstances? So it might cause you to, for example, move more into the tech sector, as an example, which does very well under COVID, and move out of sort of more hard assets. Or you may say, uh, I think the hard assets are going to be like super underpriced, right? And then the question is, what is the point at which I need to buy it before the world realizes that? And that would be a completely different question. But now notice that you're going to be thinking about those things much more rationally because you don't actually own the positions, um, which is super helpful. It's a Absolutely. weird strategy, but it works. Some, they're, no, they're, I, I'm like, I'm, my mind's kind of blown right now because it, it I mean, it, it, it makes a lot of sense, you know, just like get off well, the Well, you can see like there's a big then, difference between yeah. would you buy a stock, would you buy this stock today? And the problem is that if you try to do the thought experiment, would I buy this stock today? And this is kind of the problem that I'm saying of when you're in it, you aren't going to do a good analysis. So if I ask you to do the thought experiment of would you buy this stock today? It's not going to be a particularly good thought experiment, but if I make you sell the stock and then I say, would you like to buy it back? Now I've actually gotten you into the thought experiment. So it's actually a pretty reasonable thing to say, which is I'm just going to get off my positions. And then um, within the next week, I have to, I have to reallocate that capital in it's some so way. What do I want to reallocate it to? Right. No, no. It's so interesting because most people would do the, at, they would, they would ask themselves the first question, well, would I buy it? At, yeah. Would I buy it at this price today? You know? And, and I mean, most micro cap investors who are in it and, and know the story inside and out might say, well, yeah, you know, but I, you yeah, know, but then prove it. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing like, the, okay, yeah. then sell it and prove it to me that you're going to buy it back. So this is something that Daniel Kahneman calls um, being in the losses. We're just not good when we're in those states. And so what happens is when you try to run that thought experiment, it's just really too easy for you to come up with rationalizations as to why you would buy it. Because what you're really answering is, do I want to hold it? And the, the problem that we have, is, particularly if it's a losing position, um, is that as long as we feel like there's enough volatility available that that we could get to a win that we could get get out of this state of losing we're going to find a way to hold because we're going to seek out the volatility and the only way for us to get even is if we still own the stock right now what's interesting is on the flip side is that if let's say covid hits and you have a stock that you want a whole bunch to and then all of a sudden all of this uncertainty hits and i say to you you know would you hold this stock today your answer is probably going to be no 
Um, why? Because you want to turn that realized uh, that that paper win into a realized win. So we have an asymmetry. So when you're on the loss side and you run the it, the thought experiment, you're going to find a way to hold because that gives you a way to get to even. Because we're not thinking about it as a portfolio. Now we're thinking about a single stock and we're in the losses on that stock. Right. But on the winning side, we tend to sell too quickly. Okay. So this is that what I'm saying, that calibration between sort of perseverance and 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 quitting, right? Or pivoting or selling or so buying and selling, holding and selling. So now we know this, we have this asymmetry, right? We're gonna find all sorts of reasons to say no, we wouldn't buy it today. The world's too uncertain, COVID, who knows, blah, 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 blah. I'm just gonna cash out, I'm gonna lock in my profit. And that's going to be it. And on the downside, we're going to come up with all these reasons why we would, of course, hold. It's undervalued now. The, the market the market has overreacted to COVID. So now you're going to get like all these other answers. Well, on the winning side, if the market's overreacted to COVID, you should obviously still hold it too. Like what, what holds for the winning positions holds for the losing positions in general as well, assuming that they're in the same sector. So, so that's why if you just sell everything and start fresh, now you've turned anything that, that's paper, whether it's a paper gain or a paper loss into a realized gain or a re realized loss, that gets it off your mental balance sheet. So that now as you're going in, now you say, okay, now I, I have to reallocate this capital. And now you're actually answering the question, would I buy that stock back? What, what else is a good time to do that? I mean, you know, look, I don't know, hopefully we don't experience another pandemic or another March 2020, but I figured this might be something that maybe some investors on here who are just feeling like they're just in a lost, like, I've done so much work and I keep picking losers. Like, why? You know, like, what what are, when else is a good time to maybe think about the strategy? Well, so you so you can take the strategies to the extreme, certainly. I know, I know that there was at least one fund that did it every quarter, period. Okay, so you could take that strategy that once a quarter I'm selling everything, um, and then I have to start fresh, so that, you know, or once a year or something like that. You could that's certainly a reasonable strategy, assuming that you feel like you're you're winning. If you have fees, you know, obviously if you have fees, you have to feel like you're winning to the fees. Um, I can tell you that if you're in the middle of something like COVID, you're winning to the fees by getting it off your balance sheet because you're going to be so irrational that that you're that you'd be willing to to pay for the opportunity to start fresh to get the fresh start um so you could you could take that strategy like i'm gonna once once a quarter or or uh once every six months or once a year i'm just gonna sell everything and, and then reevaluate you could do that um but you know i i think that when you're when you're really on tilt you sort of have two choices of things that you can do one is you can walk away and say, I'm just not going to trade anything for a period of time until I can come back feeling like I'm fresh. Um, and then the other choice would be this, right? I'm just going to sell and start fresh. Um, and, and the reason, I think that part of the reason is that, so, so the issue with tilt is kind of twofold. And this is why I say like, you could either say, I'm not going to trade anything for a while. I'm just going to hold those positions and assume my opinion, opinion is crap right now. Um, or I'm just going to sell and then come back and that will give me a fresh start. That's the other thing that you can do. So, so the problem with tilt is obviously you have some sort of streak of bad luck. Like, um, you know, the point that I was making in that Ted talk that you mentioned is that part of the problem that we have, and this is why that kind of selling strategy is good is that there's all sorts of ways for us to fool ourselves that, uh, the problem is risk and not expected value. So what do I mean by that, right? Like, well, when you live in a world that has volatility, um, 
you always have this opportunity to say, I lost not because my expected value was negative, but because the world was, uh, you know, was unlucky to me, or I, I, you know, I experienced the downside. So this is, you know, if you're grinding like 52, 48, you know, kind of edges, then what's going to happen is that you can get on a streak where you just lose a lot in a row. And now you're sort of faced with this problem, right? Am I losing because um, my expected value is negative? Or am I losing because I'm unlucky? And the problem with that is that for identity reasons, we tend toward the latter. That's the self-serving bias, right? It's, you know, I'm going to blame risk as opposed to expected value, which is what we really like to do. The issue, though, is that when you blame risk, it puts you on tilt when you've had a losing streak. In other words, you feel like the world is sort of treating you unfairly in some way. Like, why did I, why did I come out on the 48% so many times in a row? right? Like that doesn't feel fair. So it's like, it's a double-edged sword. I get to preserve my identity in terms of feeling like I'm winning to my decisions, but I also go on tilt. Okay. So that's the issue. So now we have sort of two problems with tilt. One is that when you're actually in in it, in tilt, you know, in the middle of of being on tilt, you're going to make pretty poor decisions. So that's what we've been discussing. But the other issue is this, is that once you get to a level of loss that you couldn't reasonably make back in a short period of time, it's going to cause you to be a volatility seeker. In other words, you're going to be taking on uh, what I would call the appropriate volatility to get you even in a short time, which doesn't mean that that's a good decision. So I'll give you the example from poker. Um, So let's say that I'm playing a, a version of poker that's like limit poker. So in limit poker, we kind of know what the upper bound of what you can win is. Uh, If you have a really, really good session, um, you'll be in the 30 big blind range. So if I was playing like uh, a 50 and 100 um, uh, limit poker, like a big win would be 3000 and a spectacular win, like one of the best days I would have would be 5000. Right, right. Like that would be way out at the tails. Right. Okay, so we kind of know that just because the betting is limited. So, so, so now what the problem for me if I lose more than three thousand dollars is that even on a good day, if I come back the next day, I can't get even to it. Now, I, I of course it's one long poker game, but that's not the way that our minds think. We think in periods, right? So um, that's why, like, we evaluate things by quarters and things like that, right? Like. How'd you do last quarter? So um, so now if I come back the next day and I've lost an amount the day before that I can't reasonably win back if I do well on that day, I'm going to be in the losses. I'm going to start off in the losses instead of starting fresh. That means I'm going to start off on tilt. And I'm probably going to do one of two things. I'm either going to play a style that uh, increases my volatility. In other words, when I have a choice between uh, playing a line on a hand where I bet a ton versus a line on a hand that's smaller, I'm always going to be leaning toward the big line, Um, which isn't, sometimes that's right, but again, it's a calibration issue, right? Like sometimes I want to play a big line, sometimes I want to play a small line. I'm going to lean always toward the more aggressive, toward the bigger line. If I have a choice between playing a hand or not playing a hand, I'm going to lean toward playing the hand because I have to be in the game. I have to churn money through that to try to get my money back. The other thing I might do is say, this game that I'm playing in isn't big enough. So if in this game, a really big, a big win, if I, if I play 50 and hundred again, and I'm trying to get $5,000 back, that's really hard. That's like two, two or three standard deviations away from the mean, like, how am I right. supposed to do that? So now I'm going to go play one in 200. 
I'm going to find a bigger game to play. And then boom, now all of a sudden, one in 200, a good day, I can get $5,000 back pretty easily, right? Like that's a, that's a reasonable day. Now I'm sitting more in, in the realm of normal, in the normal distribution, right? I'm not sitting so far out at the tails. So, so that's kind of the twofold problem with tilt. It's not just the decisions you're making in the moment. It's what's happening when you come back the next day, if you've lost enough. So that's why these two strategies are pretty reasonable, right? The one strategy of walk away and don't literally don't even look at your P&L, don't trade for some period of time enough for you to calm down and get a reset so that you can start fresh and not feel like you're trying to get your money back from something that's happened recently. That's one way you can do it. The other way you can do it is to sell everything. And that automatically gives you the fresh start, right? You're starting new. And that's what we're trying to do is get ourselves into these resets where we don't feel like uh, we're trying to get something back from the day before. That's that's a lot to take in. And I, I I'm sorry. So, I, I, no, no, I, 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 no, it's I great. No, no, don't apologize. I'm 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 just kind of like, <laughs> but so in, in, in the interest of time, I wanted to get to another topic. And I'm gonna wait for the dog to stop barking. Okay, stop barking. Here we go. So, I, I'll try. To, I'll try to give shorter answers now. No, don't worry about it. I just go. This is this is so much fun for me. I it just keep going. I love it. But so my 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 next topic I wanted to cover. That's been pretty. It, it's been it's really interesting in the microcap space because there there's this idea that you've talked about in in every one of your talks. This idea of tribalism. You know, you actually you specifically talk about it in the Google talk. And, and I loved everything that you said in here, but I wanted to kind of apply it a little bit more to, you know, what we see with microcap stocks where there's, for example, there's been a couple microcaps where many very smart investors that I know invested in a company that has done quite well. You know, they invested in 2013 and now it's, you know, it's NASDAQ listed, you know, well over hundred bagger, like made a lot of people a lot of money while other very smart investors that I highly respect I know either sold too early or never took that position, you know, and this, and what I'm seeing, I mean, this, this isn't just related to micro caps anymore. You're seeing this with a lot of, um, you know, mega cap names where it's that it's yeah. like, it's just, a, it's just that tribalism of, you know, you know, you're believing in the founder and CEO. So, you know, I wanted to, I was so curious into the decision-making process around, you know, buying into that, either buying into it or not buying into it, you know, and that thought process, yes. you know, how do you think about that? Well, so I, I think that we need to think really, so I think that, again, the thing about tribe in the same way as we think about quit versus grit or um, overconfidence versus underconfidence or uh, any of these things is that th these things are, are always two sides of the same coin, right? And we need to think about what are, think about that intentionally, go into it intentionally and say, what are the good things and what are the bad things? And how can I think about how I can capture the good stuff um, and not uh, essentially fall prey or become victim to, to the bad stuff that goes with tribe? Um, you know, I mean, if you want to talk about like uh, the strongest tribe ever, like Bitcoin, like <laughs> that's that's a tribe. Um, I had a question so about that later too. <laughs> Well, it's just, it's very, it's, it's, it's really, really tribal. So, so the issue is that tribe can both help your decision-making and hurt your decision-making. So where tribe can help you is in 
actually persevering in things that are hard, right? So we know that there are certain things that are, are really hard. As an example, like eating healthy is hard, right? Because sugar is yummy. And if you can get yourself into a tribe of healthy eaters, that's extremely helpful for actually sticking to it. The people that are around you um, and, and sort of tying your identity to that um, is super, super helpful. And this is true uh, when it comes to certain truth, uh, decision-making things like, you know, being a truth seeker and being willing to admit you're wrong and um, really trying to see things uh, from the possibility that, you know, like, for example, I mean, it's, it, I, it's really hard for people to do what are called pre-mortems, which is imagining that you failed in advance. So imagine I, I take a position because I have a particular thesis on, on that position. Um, and I, and this is something that people should do. And I imagine it's a year from now. And uh, that that I've sold the position at a big loss, right? And the question is, why did that happen, right? And and then you sort of think about why that is. You can also think about this on a macro level, right? Which is like, uh, you could imagine um, a different type of failure. Like I sold a bunch of positions, and it turned out that I should have held them. Why do I think that happened? So that would be another way to sort of imagine the ways that you might fail in the future. Well, those things are really hard to do, but they're better to do if you're in a tribe of people who do those kinds of things, right? Who really support that type of thinking and are willing to poke around at theses and try to figure out what, why you're wrong and look ahead and imagine the ways that you might fail. Because if you imagine the ways that you might fail, you're much more prepared for them. You can find really creative hedges. Uh, you can find really creative sort of uh, out of consensus theses through doing these kinds of premortems. They're good to do, but they're hard because they're imagining your own failure. That's a place where tribe is good in the same way that it's good for not eating cake. Where tribe is really bad is that, and we can see this in politics, is that tribe can really short circuit your thinking. That once it becomes part of your identity, what ends up happening is that it's very hard for us to let go of the beliefs of the tribe because we'd have to let go of our identity. And that's really hard to do, right? I, I really recommend, I mean, actually one of the cool places to sort of see this is if you watch uh, the Michael Phelps documentary, The Weight of Gold, you can see what happens when who's, you know, when that identity is so tied up in the things that you're doing. And this is true of beliefs as well, right? Like, who are we? What is your identity, but the set of things that you believe. And then when you cohere around a very strong belief, right, whether it's, um, you know, you can see this in the value and growth battle, right? It's like the Jets and the Sharks. They're practically having like a gang war on the streets of New York over growth <laughs> versus value. And it's like, well, why is that? Like, right? Because one would assume that neither is 100% correct. And it may be conditional on the environment that you're trading in. So there might be certain market environments where a value strategy makes a lot of sense. There may be certain market environments where a growth strategy really makes sense. Uh, and it, it's probably a mix. It's probably not one versus the other. It's much more complicated than that. But you you can see this dividing up into identities that can really hurt your um, really hurt your uh, decision making ability. And then one of the things that it does is it causes uh, actually too much grit. It causes you to persist in beliefs beyond the point at which the world has told you that you might want to let go of those beliefs. So, so here's the thing that I think people need to realize is particularly when you talk about an example, like there are people who buy a stock and then it's a hunter bagger and there's other people who sold it at other times and there's other people who maybe didn't buy it at all. Anybody who has a really good strat, good trading strategy, um, this, I will tell you, this is a hundred percent certain 
you will sometimes reject opportunities that end up being really good. I guarantee it. I will guarantee that to you. You will sometimes sell something where in retrospect, you feel like you sold it too early. And you will buy things that end up being dogs. It's literally, I can guarantee you that's true. Why is that? Well, because you're deciding under uncertainty. And to not recognize that in advance is, and then use that in order to say, I, I did so, I did this wrong or I did whatever, that's just resulting, which is a com, you know, something I talk about a lot. Uh, the fact that somebody bought a stock and it ended up being a hundred bagger means very little to me as to whether they're actually a really good trader in the same way that someone who chose not to buy that stock and miss the hundred bagger, that doesn't mean anything to me about whether they're a bad trader. I need to see their whole strategy. I need to see their whole portfolio. I need to see what were the opportunities, like for the person who bought the stock that ended up being so amazing, what could they have allocated that capital to? I don't know. Um, You know, here's an example. If someone had a hundred percent of their money in that stock, and they won to it, I know they're a bad trader. I don't need to know anything else, right? Because they haven't spread their risk. That's just ridiculous, right? So I don't even need to know anything else. So I don't I don't have the details. I don't know. When the person doesn't buy that stock, what did they allocate that capital to, right? If I don't have all of that context, if I don't understand what their pro- process is, if I don't understand what their long-term performance is, I don't know what it means and I don't understand why you would it, why you would cohere around a tribe that is anything other than what I just said, which is we need to understand all of these things in context and we need to understand, of course, we're going to miss good ones and we're going to buy bad ones. That's the whole point of deciding under uncertainty. One of the things that I say in this regard is that so when I was playing poker, this used to happen all the time. Someone would be sitting next to me, you know, and the board would come out and hold them and there'd be like a seven, seven deuce on the board. And invariably, someone would lean over to me and go, oh, I folded a seven, two. And and I would I would I, I, I would always say to them, like, look, I was being snarky. I'm going to admit it. And I would say, you know, there is a way to avoid that. And they would say, what there is? And I'd say, yeah, if you play every single hand to the river, you're never you're never going to say, oh, oh, crap, I would have made a full house. And they, they understood, like when I put it that way, they understood the absurdity of what they were doing, but it's just resulting. And this is the problem. And then when we start to, when it starts to be sort of like a religion, like the people who hold, who bought that stock are now sort of part of a special group. And the ones who didn't are like the out group. It's like, how could that possibly ever be good for decision-making? Because I guarantee you for all those people who bought that stock that did so well, that if I dig into their history, I can find a whole bunch that did well like that, that they all, that they didn't buy. Right. So that that's the problem with tribalism. So we have to think about how can we bring tribalism into our decision making in a way that's good. And that's going to tend to be thinking about second order. Right. Like, how can I become a good second order thinker? Right. And how how is tribalism going to destroy my ability to decide? And as soon as you start getting that sort of zeal and one of the best signs for you that you're in a tribe is when you find out that somebody has taken a different action or holds a different belief than you do. And then you find yourself dismissing their opinion in general. And I feel that happening to me in politics. When I find out that somebody uh, disagrees with me on some sort of core belief that I have, 
Um, I'm not talking about something around morality. I'm just talking about something around policy. Right. I find myself getting that feeling of, you know, dismissing all of their other policy positions or something like I, now their opinion doesn't matter to me. And assuming that they're arguing with good faith, which in politics, obviously, sometimes it's hard to find. But assuming that they are, there's no reason that the, all those opinions should be correlated with each other. So when I start to see, feel myself dismissing all of their opinions because I disagree on one, one belief, um, I try to check myself because now I know I'm on the bad side of tribe. And so we really want to watch out for that for ourselves. Absolutely. I mean, you know, in, in when you were talking about tribalism, the one thing that I kept thinking about, and this is one of my favorite books of all time, is The Unbearable Lightness of Being by Mulan. Oh, I love like, that book. You know, like just that idea of just headiness and like, but also lightness, you know, and yeah. it's funny. I try and think about that a lot whenever I, whenever I have a core belief, I'm like, do you believe that? You know, like what, what, like you're, you're going to stake. I have, I always try and ask myself that question of like, Will you stake your entire reputation on that core belief? And if yes, okay, then maybe it, maybe it is a core belief. If not, well, why? You know, and right. and it seems and I try and bring that with everything that I try and do in business, especially in my interviews. You know, uh, I just yeah. I, I, I go in assuming I know do, nothing. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a good place to do pre mortems, like to say, imagine imagine it's a few years from now and you've changed your mind. Like, right, you don't hold that belief anymore. Why do you think that is? Right. It's like, it's just a good thing to like poke around in yourself. Like what new information did you find out? What, what did the world tell you? Those kinds of things in order to try to sort of poke around in your own beliefs. I think like one of the good things about like, if you wanted to see like the dark side and light side of tribe, it would be like, you know, some CrossFit people. So CrossFit is great because it gets you working out. So that's a good part of tribe, right? It gets, it creates community. It creates tribe. It gets you moving. You know, you make sure you do it. The bad side is when CrossFit people like laugh at people who are doing something else, <laughs> you know, like, oh, you do yoga or you're running. Oh, that's not really good. <laughs> of course, running is better than not doing. Why are you, why are you criticizing some other person's exercising program? Well, because like your tribe has gotten a little too tribey, right? So, so I think that that's like such a good example of like how tribe can get you to do really hard things. Cause like, obviously CrossFit is hard and, um, you know, you, it gets you moving and it gets you overcoming all of that, like inertia that we have. But then you could, when they start sneering at somebody who's, you know, Oh, uh, you know, I'm, you I'm do a, solid core. By the way, <laughs> by the way, I'm, I'm a total CrossFit fit, bro. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I'm not a CrossFit. No, no I mean, it's fun, but, but it's no, fine no, if you are. It's like, no, I, I think that like on balance, CrossFit is good for people to do. Oh like, yeah. It's, it's just, you don't, so it, many of my only, friends lives, but yeah, yeah it's no, just, it's, 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 it's when they start going, Oh, you do yoga. You know, it's just like, why are you criticizing what I do? Like, that's what I choose to do. Like, like live and let live. It's all good, right? You know, you know, it's really funny. I, and this is totally off topic and anything, but I've just been noticing it recently is like, you know, I, when, when people are saying, you know, it, it's just my opinion or, you know, uh, this is my feeling and, and putting it forth as, as truth. And, right. it's, some, and it's something that like, I, I, I wrestle with because I'm like, you said it's your feeling and you said it's your opinion and yet it's being conveyed like this is the way the world is. And, and, and I, it's, it's something I struggle with because I feel like you're demeaning what it means to have an opinion and to have a feeling, you know, that, and, and also not leaving it up to being questioned, you know, because yeah. you know, it's not, yeah. I don't know. How do you, how do you think about that? Well, so, so like I'm relating that back to what I said of like, when you, when you invest in uh, something, uh, some sort of financial instrument of stock. Um, 
that you're investing on, you're betting on your opinion. And so that saying like, what's my thesis? Let me take what's implicit in this decision to invest and actually make it explicit. Let me actually say what I think would have to be true of the world. Let me imagine what the signals are that that could occur in the future that could cause me to want to get off this opinion, uh, to get off this position rather. That that all of that is reminding you that it's an opinion, that it's not the truth, right? That this is in this moment in time, given the information that I have, this is my belief that this is a winning bet, right? And then um, and then I am now going to write down all of the things that are making me believe that this is a winning bet. And I'm going to write down all the things that could be true of the world in the future that would cause me to think that I should change my thesis or I should get off this bet or whatever. And boy, are you ever living in not confusing fact with opinion? <laughs> you aren't. But this is this is a really big problem that we have as just in general as decision makers is that we don't have a clear line between fact and opinion. And I think that particularly in the information environment that we live now, opinion is sold as fact all day long. And, you know, I've had people say like where, where I'll say, I'll give them an, like an actual literal fact and they'll be like, well, you know, you have a right to whatever you believe. And I'm like, I, no, I don't think you understand. Like, this isn't my opinion. Like, this is literally just a fact. Now, so, someone may, it ter- may turn out that that fact is wrong. Like, if I say uh, the atomic weight of hydrogen is one, I'm not offering you an opinion. Now, maybe right. someday a scientist is going to come find out that that's actually, we were wrong about that. I suppose that could happen. Um, but at least in this moment in time, this is a fact. I'm not offering you my opinion. I'm just saying a fact. Um, and, you know, there's all things, bit, I mean, I think that we can see like a lot of this confusion of fact with opinion and and politics into the wrong realm with like just something as simple as like, are you wearing a mask? Right. And uh, just certain facts about COVID and the pandemic management. Now, I do think that um, that people can interpret data around lockdowns uh, where opinion does matter because there's there is opinion about economy versus lockdown. Now, I personally, my opinion and what based on what I've read is that my conclusion that I've come to is the economy is the disease. Okay, so that happens to be me, but I understand why someone could hold a different opinion, but it's also a fact that a certain number of people have died, right? Like that's just a fact, it's not my opinion, right? So um, so I think that that's where you can see like that when that those lines start to blur, um, it, it can be bad on like a global scale. And one of the things that we really wanna be really careful of, and this is something when I work with my clients is that when we're in the investing world, we also blur those lines where we have certain opinions about like market dynamics or uh, how other people in the market are going to act or, um, you know, or what's going to be true of the world or, or what the fundamentals of a company are, where uh, we have opinions about that. Um, and we believe that they are facts in the simplest way. Like if we think about, if you, if you're thinking about like, what's the strength of, of the CEO, that's an opinion. The, the facts are things like, you know, what are they producing uh, when employers are saying how much their satisfaction is with that CEO? What what kind of things are they saying? That would be a fact, right? That even though it's the employee's opinion, there's some sort of survey. And now you can look at that and you can understand it's a it's a fact that those are their opinions, right? 
So, so you have inputs into your opinion about the strength of a CEO, but, but the fact that you're saying this, this, the CEO is very strong. That's not a fact. That's your opinion. And I think those are the kinds of things that really get confused and we start to believe that they're facts. So we have to have really a distinction because the, the, the fact is, pun intended, I suppose, that you need to, like, if you're saying, you know, I, I think that this CEO is strong, what you want to do is say, okay, what are the dimensions, uh, what are the sort of mediating judgments that go into my opinion about this particular CEO? Let me actually figure out what those uh, what those sort of cat- categories are that I, I think, and this is my opinion, what makes a CEO strong. So let me think about what those features are of the CEO, then I actually have to rate those on some sort of scale of zero to five, right? Like, I mean, I've got, I've got to actually record my opinion. I've got to record the broad category of what my opinion of the strength of the CEO is in general. And then I have to think about what things could be true later that would cause me to change my mind about this particular rating. And now I've got like sort of a set of forecasts. These are the things that I believe to be true of this person that has caused me to come to this opinion. Some of the inputs into that are going to be facts. Some are going to be sub, you know, sort of mediating judgments. And then I can come that out, but then you don't confuse it anymore. Now you under now you really keep it over in the opinion range. And what's really nice is that once you recognize something as an opinion, you become much more flexible about it, uh, and you're you're more willing to change your mind than if you view it as a fact. Very good. All right. So I know I think I might only have like ten or twelve minutes with you left. So I, I have a number of questions that came. Okay, in let's from try to Twitter. do some rapid fire here. I'll try. To All right, here problems. we go. Okay, here we go. Um, how, how this might not be a rapid fire one, but this was a, this is a really good question from uh, at petty underscore underscore cash Dean Trottier. What's up Dean? Uh, how has decision-making changed with so much more readily available information? You know, that's like such a good question because I think the intuition is that uh, people assume that that's made uh, decision-making better um, because you have so much information available to you. So in some ways that's true because one of the big problems with decision-making is that we, uh, uh, only have partial information, right? So uh, the more you know, uh, it should be the better the inputs into the information. Uh, so that's the good part of it is that we have access to a lot more information. And obviously the po- our computing power and our ability to, to do data analysis and think about, think algorithmically um, uh, and have more sophisticated algorithms, that's all good stuff. The bad thing, uh, and this is generally, and I think we can see this in society right now, is that um, the average person can only process a certain amount of information a day. And there's so much information coming out at, at, at us now, right? Like all the time through like all these different social media cha- channels and news outlets and 24 hour news and all this stuff is that in that particular case, what happens because we just don't have the capability, both time and processing power to actually vet all of that information is that you start to rely on proxies more. Um, so it's like, um, basically it becomes who said it. So when I go back to that thing, I said, like, I find that if I, you know, I'll, I'll sometimes find myself, well, this person shares this belief with me. So therefore I think all their opinions are good versus this person doesn't share this particular belief with me. So therefore I think all their opinions are bad, which I said was a bad thing. Uh, but that's what people do then. It's like, I can't deal with it. So if it's somebody I like who said it, you know, that, then I just sort of agree with them and I don't actually vet the information very well. And this is one of the reasons why misinformation spreads very well, because we just sort of stop this whole vetting process of let me try to figure out for myself if this is true. And we're just like, yeah, you know, someone I like said it. So, 
Um, so we start to use proxies like, okay, you know, like, oh, I like this particular, you know, reporter in the Washington Post. So I believe it's true, which is sort of a bad reason to think that things are true. So there, it's like upside and downside because there's so much information. Yeah, you have to ask yourself, you're like, all right, well, this is the information. I'm getting so much information at a certain point. You kind of be like, okay, I can't apply every single decision-making strategy to literally every piece of information that comes in to decide to, if it, to help guide whether another decision I want to make or it's validity or not. It's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. That person so like, yeah. I mean, like just as an example, I mean, I think, I think it's really easy to do this. Like you should just sort of have a checklist for yourself. Like how many sources have I heard say this? Is it just like an echo chamber of the same source or am I hear that hearing this like independently from different sources? So a lot of times, like I'll see tweets, where someone will send it to me and I'll say, I'll just say back, I like, I'll say, I wonder if that's true because that seems like it should just pass the smell test also. Like, doesn't that seem a little bit weird? Oh, I'd really like to see if this gets independently verified. Um, you know, that, that kind of thing. And I, you know, with, for example, with what happened last week, you know, there was a lot of stuff that got sent around that, that turned out not to be true. And then also a lot of things that was worse than what we thought was true. Um, you know, as you've got more information and that's a good reason that you should sort of hold your beliefs uh, sort of, you know, lightly. So there were a few things where I said, oh, I don't know if that sounds like that would actually be true. That turned out not to be And others where I said, oh, I'm not sure I'd really like to see more evidence. And then more evidence came in and I realized it was true. Right. So uh, I think that we need to just sort of have a checklist of what are the things that I need to know in order to believe something is true so that I'm not just like kind of in a, you know, using proxies and just, just sort of like recording information. Cause it's hard to undo those things once you believe them. All right. Okay. So I got two quick ones that go back to your poker okay. career that I think will be really fun. So okay. th this is from uh, at TSOH underscore investing science of hitting. What up, Alex? Uh, he asks, what is your most memorable experience at the card table? Mm. Oh, this might not be a quick hitter actually. <laughs> no, 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 it is. So I'll tell, I'll give you two really quick ones. Um, one would be um, uh, certainly like, you know, I, I would say like winning the tournament of champions for sure against Phil Helmuth. Um, so I that would definitely I, be it. I rewatched that by the way, right before we got on, I was like, Oh, oh cool. Yeah. So, so that was definitely it. And particularly so the most memorable thing was I had a hand where uh, he folded and I only showed him one card and it really got him upset. Oh. Um, and he actually called me like a week later and said, Annie, I have to know what your hand was. I have to know what your <laughs> hand was. Um, it was a situation where I had Kings and nines, but I only showed him the nine and it really like put him on tilt. And then it was like begging me to tell him what the other card was. And I was like, you'll find out when everybody else does on TV. Phil. Um, so that was fun just to like needle him. Um, the other, the other thing that I'll say, cause people won't know this one. This is very funny. I was really, really pregnant and I was playing a cash game against uh, in a game that my brother was in. And I won't give the details of the hand, but uh, my brother really, what we would call butchered the hand. So there was a hand where I started off with like, I'm a humongous favorite and I continued to be a really huge favorite. And then he hit like, you know, like a 2% or, or something like that, or 4% or on the river. And he put in way too much money on the hand. He really played the hand poorly. Um, and I'm like, uh, I think I was like eight months pregnant or something. I mean, I was, I was very pregnant. Um, and um, he played the hand so bad that my friend David Gray said to him, Oh, by the way, I could have pulled any tourist off the street off the strip, brought them in, had them watch that hand and they would have known she had you beat. You're such a, you're such a fish Howard. 
So anyway, I was pregnant and quite hormonal. I just want to say that. So I picked up a stack of yellow chips, which are thousands because I was so mad. And I, and by the way, I never did. This is the only time I ever did this. Like I was a very calm person at the poker table, but I was very pregnant and I was pissed. And I took this, I took the chips and I just I hit, I threw them against the wall of the, of the mirage. We were up at the table, one table. So it was in the corner. And I looked at my brother. I said, pick those up. And I walked out of the room. The next time I came back to play, I sat down and my brother was in the game and we never spoke of this. We've never spoken of this. He just took this stack of chips and slid it over in front of me. Wow. And that was the end of it. And it's the only time I've ever had an outburst in a poker room, but it was that. And it was because my brother was such a donkey. <laughs> so there you go. Oh, that's so good. Okay. Here we go. Your final question before I let okay. you go. This is a really good one too. And this is from at Joe Gerard at Joe S Gerard. He asks the three easiest tells of most amateurs. What are they? Sure. Yeah. So strong is weak. Weak is strong. So if they take their chips and they really like pound them in with force, that usually means they're pretty weak. And if they sort of gently like slide the chips in, <laughs> um, that usually means they're pretty strong. So if they're like, you know, like this, uh, you should really worry about it. So that, that would be, uh, number one. Um, yeah. So number two, this is really important is that people mistake when someone, um, shake, when someone, you know how someone will shake their leg up and down. Yep. Um, people mistake that as a sign that they're really nervous, but it's actually a sign that they're excited. It's like a, a dog wagging their tail. So when you see someone doing that with their leg, it usually means that they're pretty excited about their hand. Um, uh, and then the last thing I'll say is like, you always kind of want to know if someone has a tough decision or not, because that tells you something about their hand. Uh, and you can just look at speed. You should be really paying attention to flow at the table. So how quickly someone is acting will tell you a lot about, about what the quality of their hand is. Someone, someone calls really fast. It uh, means they have a pretty easy decision, right? So it means it's a hand that they don't have to think about raising with uh, or and a hand that they don't think to think about folding with. So that actually tells you that's actually a really big tell that people, uh, professional poker players really care about. But other people are looking for like blink rate and things like that. Just notice what's the tempo. Like the mm -hmm. tempo is such a big tell. Gotcha. You know, one quick story. My first time ever playing a cash game in Vegas is I, it was after a night out. I remember I, I had like a suit on and everything. And I, and it was, it was a lesson that I, I think I carried from that was like, you know, be, be who you want to, to be in a more or less, because I was yeah. like, all right, I'm going to go into this game. Listen, I don't know. I'm still building my wealth. I don't have pots pissing, but I'm going to go into this game. Like I have no regard for how I'm going to play. You know, I'm just going to completely make everybody totally confused. And that's my game plan. And I went and I did well. And I remember that's actually one of the a guys very good strategy, by the way, it, it, uh, the prop, the only issue with that. So that strategy works really well for the first few yeah, times, like, right. Uh, but not if you're playing against bad players, by the way, if you're playing against players who are lower, that's actually just a great strategy, period. If you uh, try to rinse and repeat that against experts, it'll work in the beginning and then it won't. Obviously it's like getting right. marked so it'll adjust to you, but, but actually just, and then I have to go, one of the big complaints that I used to get from people is don't you hate playing against players who don't know what they're doing? And my response was always, um, tennis, uh, death match. Are you playing against a beginner or someone who's actually really knows what they're doing? And they were always like a beginner. And I said, so then you should like to play against the beginner in poker too. So think about what you're doing that isn't counteracting somebody who's doing that. 
So it turns out that a lot of the normal strategies don't work well against somebody who is playing like you, which is why it's such a good strategy. And people get stuck in their beliefs about what makes a good poker player. That's the problem. And so they don't actually adjust to what you would be doing. Right. So, so that's why it's such a good strategy because people kind of get stuck in their idea of how you're supposed to play poker. So it's actually brilliant. And you should do that every time you go and play poker. And if, and, and I, that was a metaphor as well, everybody. Okay. That, that's a metaphor for life. If you know, yeah, think outside exactly. the box, of course, you know, but with that soon to be Dr. Annie Duke, thank, thank you so you. much for joining me today. Where can people go and find more information on you buy the books, it, everything. Yeah, so there's a few places. One is you can go to my website, AnnieDuke.com, and you can find out lots of you know information there, get links to podcasts and stuff that I've done. I'm on Twitter, at Annie Duke. Uh, and then also, I would love it if people would check out the Alliance for Decision Education. It's a nonprofit I founded trying to bring decision education, the kind of stuff that I've been talking about, into K-12 through education in the same way that kids get social-emotional learning now. Uh, we really feel like less trigonometry, more decision education would be way better uh, so that people can figure out what is true and what they're supposed to do about what's true. And I feel like that's really lacking in, uh, in education now. So if people, can, uh, it's the Alliance for Decision Education. I had one question like kind of around that too, and I didn't get to it. Do you mind if I ask you two seconds? Is that okay? I can't. I, I ah, have a podcast okay, next literally time. at this second. So next time. Next anyway, time. this right, has Annie, been so fun. Yes. Next time. Let's keep in touch. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Annie. Okay. Really All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Podcast.